0: One of the things that often I think occurs to people when you hear about somebody who's been married for that long, you think, man, they must really know each other really well. Um, but one one of the things, and that's really what, I mean, that's what the psalm is about, right? Psalm 139. God, that God, know, that God knows you, right? And one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading through the psalm was that, you know, being known as kind of a double-edged sword, Right? There's been some stuff that I've run into this last year that's made me feel that way. One of them was the uh, the NSA controversy about them reading your emails and listening to phone calls and stuff like that. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? You know, you're kind of like, well, I like that they're trying to stop terrorism. I don't, don't want that, but I don't really want them listening to my phone calls either. Um, <clears throat> or uh, there's a lot of people here who work for Epic, right? The medical software company. I was at the doctor two days ago, and it was wonderful that everything that's ever happened to me was right there in front of his face. But what it also means is that if um, a doctor ever wants to write anything about you, every doctor the rest of your life is going to see it. And if you ever um, insinuate even that something could have been their fault in the way they treated you, um, every doctor for the rest of your life is going to treat you like a, su- a, su- a sumi hazard, you know? Um, and it's just, every, it's just you're known. It's a double-edged sword, right? Or, you know, when I was a kid, you could go around and you weren't on camera everywhere you went. Right? I mean, you go to school, you go to the store, you could go to places, and you weren't always on camera. Um, There's a lot of people who want to be celebrities. You're already on a lot of film every week. I'll just tell you right now. Just look up wherever you go and you'll see the little black domes everywhere. And um, and, and here's the, the good news is, there's cameras on you. The bad news is, there's cameras on you wherever you go, right? Or one person said this week, it's be kind of like having your psychologist at your small group, you know? It's like they—your psychologist at your small group, you know, they bring a lot of insight and, you know, whatever, but they're also like all your secrets are in their head, and they're there at small group, right? <clears throat> it's a double-edged sword, and we've got to deal with that because what this psalm says straight away all the way through in every verse— as clearly as possible And pushes it as far as possible Is that God knows you God knows you just all the way down to the bottom Everything there is possible to know about you God knows God knows, And in Christian doctrine we call this the doctrine of omniscience That, that which is sentient and That which is knowledge God has all of it You can say it this way God knows all true propositions That's a really sexy way to say it, right? God knows everything, and that's, um, that's at least terrifying and hopefully, theoretically, possibly comforting, right? As it relates to the gospel, how does it relate to Jesus? It relates to him in the sense that it's specifically the one that knows you the best that died for you, that died to save you. The one who knew every reason why not to care about you is the one who cared enough to come to redeem and save, right? And that, on on some levels, it can be really terrifying, but if you just think about it for a minute, the idea that if you're a Christian, the idea that God knows everything about you, um, there's tons of benefits that flow from that pretty fast. For example, the doctrine of God's omniscience is a refuge against um, lying to yourself, against a dishonest heart, right? Like, whenever you're in a situation where you can kind of lie to yourself... You are immediately in the presence of somebody who is not going to lie to himself about you. He knows exactly why you did it, exactly why you're going to do it, exactly what you're thinking, exactly why you're doing that. And even if you decide to lie to yourself, he's not going to lie to himself. And it, it's almost like there is a psychology present. There is an expression of a face looking at you when you decide how you're going to interpret everything that happens in your life that says, I'm not going to lie to myself about this. You can go that way down, down the path of unreality, but I'm not going with you. I'm going to stay over back here in reality. And it'll keep you honest It'll keep you more honest with yourself It's also a, wire, a Wireless connection to someone Who knows you well all the time to combat Things like loneliness in a way that Isn't a dehumanizing diversion I mean think about it, how do we normally deal With being alone with ourselves Right Well, What we've spent billions and billions And billions of dollars on and research hours And IQ on um, Is on things that will divert us I mean think about it Think about the values of our culture. Why do we spend as much as we spend on having sports games and coming up with movies? In that money, why why wouldn't we spend that money on researching diseases? And because the, one of the human needs that everybody feels, whether you have cancer or not, what you do feel is you feel terrified to be alone with yourself. And so, what we desperately want to consume is belonging, diversion. All these kinds of things, right? And so, what what the way most of us deal with loneliness is? Do you use this word in "my house"? In the in this is the word we use in my house is I need a little decompression time. Do you use that one? We're just kind of like, oh, I just want to, I just want to veg out, right? And so, with, for that, for me, that's like, what haven't I watched on Netflix, right? But the doctrine of omniscience says this: instead of instead of escaping to deal with loneliness and a sense of uselessness or whatever. There is is one who is always present that when you turn to face him, you can't help but become more authentic rather than less. Right? It's it's a little unnerving. It's a little terrifying. But if you turn to God and you know God somewhat for what he's really like, it forces you to to deal with it. It, it, here's Here's an exercise. You get in your car and you're going to drive somewhere and you shut your radio off you don't let anything play right and here's how you know you have a problem when you start talking to somebody else a hypothetical person in your mind or you start daydreaming about some other scenario and you can't actually be with yourself or be with yourself talking to God for more than about 28 seconds that's when you know you have a diversion problem and I'll just let you on this you probably do right cuz we're spoiled and we're americans we have all this stuff and it's fun right now this whole series we've been talking about what is the response of faith to the gospel and um in Psalm 139 there's there's at least four and that's what I want to talk about this morning how do we how do we respond to this unnerving impossibly comforting truth of the fact that god knows absolutely everything there is to know about you what do you do um now, I was sick all week, and I was in the Dominican Republic for four days, and I was sicker when I got back. Um, but Brandon Brooks, who is um, raising support to go on crew staff, has also come on to help me be my research assistant. and He did a great job writing an outline for this. So um, I just had to make it my own and tweak it a little bit, but I was really glad for that. Um, the first response that you can see in these first verses is that it creates humility. It makes you wonderfully smaller and God wonderfully bigger. And look at these verses. For the record of music of David a psalm. O oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. And he pushes it further. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You have me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty. For me to attain. One of the things that's kind of interesting about that verse, um, the unnerving part is is verse five. I mean, think about think about what verse five says. <clears throat> you hem me in. What does that mean? Like you've actually sewn me into something, right? It's like you've wrapped, and you wrapped somebody in a cloth and then you sewed it tight. Like you've hemmed me in, and you're behind me. <laughs> You're before me, and your hand is on me. Anybody feeling relationally cla- claustrophobic? Right. I mean, it's, that's pretty intense. It's kind of like, I'll, don't call me, I'll call you. Right. I mean, it, um, but that, but that's the image that David has about God's not only His omniscience, but His like, His omnipresence, like His His thereness. Right. It's. It's a little unnerving. It's a little not—he knows everything, and he's right there. One of the questions I um, think—sorry—people end up asking themselves is, who really knows me best? There's a kind of aloneness that everybody has that you really know that there's an awful lot about you that even the people that are closest to you don't know. Right, so you might look at Joyce and Chet and be like, you know, they've been married seventy years. They probably know a lot about each other. They probably do know a lot about each other. Or, you, or, but for most of us, if we were going to answer the question, who knows the bo- who in the room knows the most about me, who's a human, um, it would be me, right? Like I, Alexi and I. Um, Alexia and I did this thing um, called the Love Map. This thing over here, which is like all these open-ended questions you can ask to like map out your love relationship and know each other better. We did that for marriage enrichment, and it, it's fun. It's a great exercise to do. I totally commend it to you. But it's also a little embarrassing because these are questions that you kind of feel like if you've been married for 13 years and known each other for three and a half more years than that, you probably ought to know the answer to that question. And you're kind of like, I'll pass. Right, <clears throat> Because even if I tell my wife a lot um, and, and my wife likes to communicate to me more than I do to her But even with all the communicating she might do for me um, there's still, I mean, We're not going to talk about what I thought about over the last hour We're not t- going to talk about every desire I had during the day That I had to divert through self-control We're not going to talk about everything I thought about We're not going to talk about everything I dreamed We're not, not going to talk about all of it It's too time-consuming Right And I know that, most of that stuff about myself, and nobody else does, right? But what this psalm begins to press forward is what you know about you is still kids' play. right? Like do you know what you were doing at 8:45 this morning? Right, if you're at this service, maybe sleeping.? Right, But do you know what you were doing at 8:45 in the morning a thousand days ago? You'd be like, "Well, predictably next sleeping. Just change the time, you jerk, right? Like, for example, how many people in the room are like me that you don't have more than 20 clear memories of your life before the age of six? Right? You just don't have them, like... Nothing really big happened, apparently um, That seared anything into my memory I just don't remember very much But you know what? God knows every single one of those things That happened to you and to me How it shaped us How we thought about it What it did How it's made us the person we are He knows all that stuff We can't even remember it It happened to us It's our life we don't even, I don't even remember I probably did some eating And some sleeping And some misbehaving Right? And so did you God knows all of that Just the stuff you've done today Do you know why you did all of it? And even if you say yes, well, all that means is I know the immediate psychological reason I knew of. But what if we went down fifteen layers for every action you did today so far? Would you know that? Right. What this passage is saying is, God knows all that, and the knowledge, the self knowledge that you possess. Even if you're deeply introspective and all—I mean, use all the little psychological words for people who have interpersonal knowledge or intra, or whatever the word they use for that is, right? You're still, you're still, you're still in kindergarten about you. You are an insoluble puzzle. Even to yourself. And you're not to God, not a bit. That's what this passage says. And... The response that David has to this is that there's a certain sense of conceptual overload that that should create, right? I mean, because see, reason, reason can do two things with this, right? Reason can either define it so you don't have to feel it, right? It can clarify it. So, what is omniscience? Well, omniscience is that God knows all true propositions, right? But we got our head around it, isn't that great? Right? But did we just, do we really know what that means? I mean, no, what we did is we clarified. We labeled something, and by labeling it, we presumed we understood it. Labeling something and understanding something are not the same thing. I'm all about clarification. I love logic. I love clarification. But sometimes just because we can talk about something, we think we understand something. They're not the same. When the psalmist gets to this point, David says, this knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain it. Because he recognizes if, if I really try to think this out I'm going to do the other thing reason can do And that is is I'm going to make myself insane I'm going to try to get this in my head And there's going to be a con- complexity Conceptual overload that I can't do So the only thing I can do is what, Here's what he's basically saying The only thing I can do is I can let my logic Point me in the right direction And then I let, have to let another human faculty Run away with it And that is my imagination I've got to allow myself to dream about it To imagine it To let the concept expand So that I can feel it The idea The truth That God knows everything Ought to do something to you It It ought to affect you It ought to feel like This is way bigger Than I can possibly imagine And you have to let yourself Imagine it And not by Trying to get it all in your head But to let yourself swim in it Without imagination It's not, the view isn't going to be Big enough and it's not going to shrink you If I say to you, don't you realize omniscience is true And you go, yes, and I say, omniscience means God knows all true propositions, and you go, yep it does Are you going to feel smaller And, and see God is bigger Nope No you're not You've got to th- Let it work Right There's this quote from G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, where he talks about how modern people often think about reasoning through these things. He's like, no, you've got to be a poet. You've got to be a psalmist. It's not enough for David to be a psalmist. You've got to be a poet about this in your own heart, in your own mind. You've got to let what you know come together with your imagination and get expanded until it does something for you. Otherwise, you're just a floating brain. You're not a human being. (coughs) This is from the second chapter of Orthodoxy called The Maniac. He writes There's a notion adrift everywhere that imagination, especially mystical imagination, is dangerous to the human mental balance. Imagination, being a poet from the inside out, does not breed insanity. Exact, exactly what does breed insanity is reason. Poets do not go mad, but chess players do. Mathematicians go mad, and cashiers, but creative artists very seldom. I'm not, as will be seen in any sense, attacking logic. I only say that this danger does lie in logic, not in imagination. Everywhere we see that men do not go mad by dreaming, critics are madder than poets. Homer is complete and calm enough. It is his critics who tear him into extravagant tatters. Shakespeare is quite himself. It is only some of his critics who have discovered that he was somebody else. And though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, the book of Revelation, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. The general fact is simple poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so make it finite. The result is mental exhaustion. To accept everything is an exercise, to understand everything, a strain. The poet only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself out in. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. The madman is not the man who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. His mind moves in a perfect but narrow circle. A small circle is quite as infinite as a large circle, but though it is quite as infinite, it is not so large. All right, why do we have music at church? Why should there be a book of poetry in the Bible? Why isn't the Bible a systematic theology? It could have been much shorter, right? God could have crammed the truths of the Bible into like 55 pages probably, right? And would the same conceptual content would be present in both books, it's a little wordy with this one, isn't he? Why should why should this be the case? It's because, in order for us to be humbled by this idea, we can't just label it and say, "Oh, I understand it," and we also can't try to we can't try to logic it all out because our, because it's not that's not going to happen. But what we can do is take the truth. And we can let the truth expand us as it's applied through our poetic imagination to see how big God is. You can't drink in the ocean, but you can feel small floating in it. And what the idea of God's knowledge could create in us is that it shrinks us, but the benefit is that it makes the world bigger and more beautiful and more mysterious and more interesting. And the God of that world, all the greater in our eyes. The effect of omniscience, that God knows you, could be an enormously awakening and inspiring humility. And ultimately, the proposition that it'll teach you is this, that you are nothing near the expert on yourself. See, one of the things that—one of the concepts we have about ourselves that we need to be disabused of by the gospel— is that we think we know ourselves And when we think we know ourselves We think we know what's best for ourselves And that's not true And, and here's, the, here's the more depressing thing It's never going to be true There is one who knows you who knows you more than you've ever begun to know about yourself and he's laid a way out in front of you that's good for you and he sent a savior for you that is exactly what you need and he knows what you need and you are a kindergartner in knowledge of what you really need and God is willing to give you and tell you what you need. The second thing is Comfort. right, these are the next verses. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day for darkness is as light to you. Does that sound like somebody who's deeply comforted? It doesn't, does it? That's not how I read it. I read it as somebody who is relationally panicked from the first verses. And they're like, what if I want out of this relationship? You're behind me. You're before me. Your hand is on me. What if I want out? What if I, what if I um, go up into the space? And what if I get an apartment in hell? Can I get away from you? What if I go to the farthest end of the world Right? Or what if I somehow cloaked myself in darkness? And he's like, you know what? I, I realize it's not going to work. There is nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide from this. There's nowhere to get away from you. There is no divine restraining order. There's nothing, there's nothing that you can do to make this truth untrue. And so, you've got, here are your two options. Your two options are, which attitude choice are you going to have in relationship to this truth that you can't make not true? There's nowhere to go. So you can either hate that it's true and see that it is the worst possible news in the world. Or, you can come to both hate and love that it's true because it both unnerves you but also comforts you. I don't think it should, you should ever be totally okay with the idea that God sees everything. There's, I, there's always some level of be part of you that's like, oh, that's a little embarrassing. But that can be a minority part where the vast majority is that it's comforting. Because the one that knows you and sees you loves you. <clears throat> one of the... Um, one of the kinds of movies that I really, really hate is liar movies. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where the whole movies the whole premise of the movie is basically based on a lie. And two-thirds to three-quarters of the movie is people trying to keep the lie hidden. And then the last third to quarter of the movie is what happens when the lie finally comes out. Now some lie movies are actually kinda interesting. Like some of these movies are actually I really like. The one I hate the most is the is Meet the Parents. Do you remember that one? Right? Okay. I hate I just I can't stand it. I can't stand watching the movie, and it's not because of the pun on the F word, or or it's none of that. It's that um, the the whole movie is supposed to be like it, he is an idiot because he's a liar, right? I mean, the whole thing is about how the fact that something embarrassing happens, and instead of being embarrassed, he just lies. So the thing, he, he doesn't want to be true about his character, and for everybody to know about his character, which isn't even really true, he actually makes true about his character by becoming a liar, and lying, and lying, and lying. If I got to the end, if I was the dad in that movie, and I got to the end of the movie, I found out, oh, so I was intimidating you, and so how you responded to that is you just lied for five days. I would not at the end of that movie be like, you know what, would you please be my son-in-law? I'd be like, you're an idiot. You're a liar. Of course I don't trust my daughter to marry you. Right, Because it's, it's preposterous. But see, part of, the, part of the idea in a film like that is why does the person lie? Because the person can't bring themselves to inf- accept the fact of their own exposure. That if the thing that's true about me was known to the people who are supposed to love me, I would not be lovable to them. The idea is is that if I can produce an idea of myself for you In which I have subtracted the things that make me unlovable And have amplified the things that make me possibly lovable You might love me But if you knew everything about me And you knew everything about me that would properly demotivate your affection for me I cannot trust that you will actually love me When you see what I really am In dating, we call that false advertising. Right? Part of the point of this passage is that it is exactly in that context that the gospel happens. None of that stuff is hidden from God. God sees all of that stuff. And the Bible actually speaks a little bit more frankly about this in Romans chapter 5. Because the Apostle Paul is talking about Christ dying for our sins so that all the things that make us unlovable can be put away and so we can be God's children. And listen to what God rightly sees us as when he makes the choice that Christ should come and die for us. He says this, For while we were still weak, now think about that. especially important for some of you men or just us modern people. There's some of us that we don't care if people think we're wicked as long as they think we're strong. What this passage says is you aren't just wicked, you are weak. Because our moral failure is the greatest sign of our personal weakness. Not how much we can lift. Weakness and strength is demonstrated in how people live out what's right, true, good, and beautiful. and And the... The clearness and the strength and the finitude and the consistency out of which they live out what's good, true, and beautiful no matter what's happening around them. That's what strength is. And so if we're ungodly, we are by definition weak. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is, not like God. And if God is the maximal embodiment of all that is good, true, right, beautiful, and honorable, we are the opposite of all those things. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have now been, just, have, we have now been justified, made right with God by his blood— much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by his death, that is the death of Jesus, the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life, that is his resurrection. So, so, so that's the tally for us. So here's the thing, there's no disillusionment with God in terms of redemption, is there? And there's no sense in us living out meet the parents with God. You don't need to live out that movie with God. God sees right through that. And God God doesn't say, look, for all you people who are who are pretty good, I can make you good enough. And so come to me, you who are pretty good, and I will make you good enough. And so then you can try to lie and be like, Well, I'm pretty good. And then God would have this, this wonderful, hypocritical, self-righteous church that he can bring to himself. That's not what we said. He says, listen, let's, let's start this way. I know it all. I actually know it all. I know every thought. I know every lack of generosity in your heart. I know every problem with you. I know everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought. I, I, I know it. I know all of it. Because okay, so you don't have to play. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to do any of that stuff. And I, listen, I know things about you that are far more embarrassing than anything you even consciously know about yourself. I know about the inner workings of your heart that you can't even bring yourself to admit to yourself that you don't even know are there, that are the rankest thing you could possibly imagine. And I knew it. I knew it from eternity past. I knew it before I ever decided to send Jesus. It wasn't like I decided to send Jesus and then I knew what you'd really be like and then I didn't want to hold him back because I already said I'd send him. No, no. I knew all of that way before and then I decided to do redemption, and I sent Jesus for you while you were weak, while you were ungodly, while you were a sinner, while you were my enemy. Right? That's the message. And see, if you know that, God's absolute complete knowledge of you is going to be, it's going to be unnerving. But if you know that, it'll also be comforting. It will be. You can't make that truth untrue, but you can believe in such a way as that truth becomes comforting and not just unnerving. the third is that it produces worship and praise right for you created my inmost being you God knit me together in my mother's womb I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made your works are wonderful I know that full well my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be how precious to me are your thoughts O God how vast the sum of them were i to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. So you can see two things in that, right? One is literal praise, right? He says, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully, meaning he actually says it, right? Praise is, by definition, an outward expression. It's not an internal thing, right? But it comes from something internal. He says, when I think about this stuff, it's, it's precious to me. Um, the 18th century word was he, was he became sensible of it Like there was a sense inside of him Like a realization that the thing was true He cares about it It matters and Because it matters He praises Right And the, the claim is Is that He recognizes that God Creates things of great wonder And he recognizes that God's hand His creative hand Not just his knowledge But his, his active creation was on him In the womb. This is why this is one of the most quoted biblical passages in in relation to how Christians think through things like abortion. Right? He says, "You saw me as I was being knitted together in my mother's womb. You were intentionally doing something there, and then I was here. And when I think about that, it astounds me." Right. Um. So this week I was. I'm writing this on Psalm 139, and for Monday through Thursday, I was in the Dominican Republic. I don't know if some of you know this. um, I was going down there to look at some places where our church is going to do a 10-year developmental partnership to try to take a town from dollar-a-day abject poverty where kids are dying of easily preventable diseases and to get them to a place where they could be a self-sustaining, growing, and developing community. Um, we did it 10 years ago. worked great. I got to see Los Patatos this week, and it's amazing what's going on there. I met some of the kids that were... They're at university now, studying psychology and dentistry. I mean, like, stuff like, you know, stuff that you study at college. And um, they're leaders in their community. They're, it's really It's amazing what's going on in that place. And But then I, look, I got to visit the places where none of that's going on. And um, <clears throat> at one point, they... Um, I, they said, we're going to go to, the, to an orphanage. Now, I've been to orphanages in a number of different places in the world, and orphanages can be actually be kind of fun um, because there's all these kids, and they're excited to meet you, and you can play around with them and stuff like that. That was not what this was, and they did not tell me until I got there. This orphanage was actually a place for abandoned, profoundly disabled children. So, the vast majority of kids at this place, a lot of them, for a lot of them, it was, it was cerebral palsy, but there's a lot of different things. Most of the kids couldn't get out of their bed. They couldn't talk. There was no evidence that they, they had coherent thoughts at all. And most of them were in their teens. So they weren't little babies. And so for like an hour and a half, I got to walk around from bed to bed to bed to bed to bed of another human being who smelled good, was clearly freshly diapered, was being taken care of as they laid in their two-and-a-half-foot-by-six-foot crib um, as they kind of writhed around and stuff in there. Um, sometimes smiling, sometimes apparently oblivious to this. And <clears throat> and that week is the week I got to meditate on Psalm 139. So the night before, I'm sitting by the pool at my resort-like hotel, and I am reading through Psalm 139, thinking about Psalm 139, reading um, for... You saw me in my mother's womb. You knit me together in the inmost place. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And then the next day I get to go into that place and to see that. And um, and, and there's two things I think that are important to say about that in relationship to this. One is that what that experience produced in me was the kind of thoughts that I would classify as Nazi thoughts I walked around that orphanage And I, I thought like a Nazi because, because here's what came out of my heart By the time I got to the twenty-fifth bed, by the time I got to the fourth room, where there was a twenty-year-old girl lying on her face on the ground, her fingers so twisted around that she could hardly move, so she was twisting her head all the way back around while spit was falling out of her mouth to look at one of the people who was talking to her. My my thought was this: you know what, man? Some of these people—they just need to be put out of their misery. This is just awful. Um, it's practical It's a practical thought But that's, that's how I felt I, I mean, what's redeemable about this? What's good about this? I mean, he's not I mean, he'd be better off dead It's really I mean, I didn't want to kill him But there's, there was this That was the That was what naturally came out So, said, hi, my name's Nick I'm a pastor And I think like Adolf Hitler Naturally And when I think about that, I look at what the Bible says about it. Here's, here's the thing that bothers me. In John 9, there's this place where Jesus walks up on a guy who's born blind. His apostles are here, and the apostles look at him. They know God doesn't make mistakes in creation, so they look at him and they say, well, this must be, therefore, this must be punishment. So they turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind like this? Um, and, of course, this is a guy who's blind from birth, so they might have deduced that this wasn't his, wasn't his sin, but what are you do you do? And so Jesus says, listen, it wasn't, it wasn't actually him or his parents. He was born like that so that the glory of God could be displayed in his life, right? And then Jesus heals him. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a, I have a huge problem with that. Because See, for me, that was a perfect place for Jesus to do some really good apologetics philosophy, to say, listen, guys, if you go and read your Bibles back in Genesis 3, God created everything good. And then human beings sinned, and they brought a curse upon the world. God's judicial curse that generally lays over all of creation. And it, produce, it produces everything that should not be produced by God's good creation. And so it produced death, and disease, and deformity, and natural disaster, and all these kinds of things. And that came into the world when that happened. I've come to undo those things. They're, they're not God's fault. God doesn't stand ultimately behind him. They happen because of the curse, and I've come to redeem the curse. And you know my problem? Why didn't Jesus say that? It's even worse in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, Moses gets sent to, to the Egyptians, and he's supposed to talk, and he says to God, he says, I don't want to go because I don't talk well. And you know what God says to him? He doesn't say, just go and I'll send you a memo. Do you know what he says? That's what he says in Exodus 4. He says, Moses, who makes deaf people deaf? And Moses, who makes blind people blind? And like, as a philosopher, I want to say to God, God, actually, hold on, time out. That, that argument philosophically actually proves too much. Right? Because it, you're actually admitting to something else when you make that argument. So you might want to say some, go about that a little differently. Right? Why is it in the moments where God can step back away from these kinds of things and say, I'm not responsible for that. You're responsible for that because the human race entered into sin. It deserves my judicial curse. And if you want to be part of redemption, believe in my Savior that I've sent and I will redeem all things in the end and you can experience that redemption fully and ultimately, but I am not responsible for these things. He could make that argument in those moments and he doesn't. Does it bother you? It bothers me. And here's the thing, he just amps it way up. I walk into that place and I see that girl and I have to think about this psalm and the biblical answer is not, that's not my fault, Nick. You stand in for Christ. Do whatever that can be done and ultimate redemption will take care of this. No. I walk in there and God's biblical response is, I made that and I think thoughts about that. I think more thoughts about her than there is sand on the seashore. I don't know what to do with that. That either makes it ten times worse or ten times better. But what it does do If it's true And I believe it's true Is that it could make a non-Nazi out of me That's what it could do If I believed that It could be God looking at me in the face And saying Listen, the only reason you care about this girl Is because you can make a point in your freaking sermon You don't even care You don't even know her name It was on the wall it was drawn out and crayon with her name on the wall. You do not even know her name. You weren't even strong enough to go over and touch her. I've been thinking thoughts about her from eternity past. And I will think thoughts about her in eternity future. And I have placed her there, and I did this, and I make these things, and they are fearfully and wonderfully made, and I think thoughts about them. And what is that going to do to you? And here's here's where I hope that that takes it, which is really the fourth thing. That ultimately, this would do something to me. That the ultimate response would be continued repentance, continued transformation, right? He goes into this thing about how he's like, God, don't I hate people who hate you? People who are bloodthirsty and wicked, don't I... Don't I hate—I mean, for some of you, you might be like, I don't like that word, hate. Yeah, but you see, one of the things he's saying is there's, he recognizes there's two teams. Right, there's, there is on God's side, and there's not on God's side. That, I mean, there, there are two teams, and he's like, I'm not on that team. I don't want to be on that team. And he gets to the end of those verses, and what does he, what does he say? See, there's some thoughts that you're going to think that I'm going to think that aren't worshipful thoughts. In the first seven or eight verses, there's there's direction towards all kinds of worshipful thoughts. But that doesn't mean every thought you think about God is going to be a worshipful thought. You're going to think, God, why don't you kill the wicked? Why why don't you do that? Why don't you end suffering? Why don't you end poverty? Why did I lose my job? Why is there disability? Why are the— Why does this all— I mean, you're going to have non-worshipful thoughts, but when he gets to the end, he has to make one of two choices. Either you choose accusing God and telling him he should repent— Or you look at the very thought that you have that isn't worshipful and you apply it to yourself and you ask God how it could cause you to repent. Because he gets this thing about the wicked and what does he say? He says, God, search me and know my anxieties and you who knows everything, you look and you see, is there a a wicked offensive way in me? Am I like those people that I just wanted you to condemn? The people who I said I hate, but who hate you, who deserve you to wipe them off the face of the earth. You look at me and you show me how I'm, how I'm like them. Okay, is that a verse you've memorized? Some of you good Christians have memorized that verse, right? Search my God, and my heart. And you're still in your like journal. You might be on your mirror. This is a famous t- verse in the Bible. But look at its context. What's its context? God, show me in the ways that, that people who don't want to be on your team— who are bloodthirsty, and they'll lie about you. How am I just like them? And how, we, how can you see the anxieties in me that cause me to behave that way and to think that way, to feel like that? that? And how can you show, will you show me how I'm like that? And will you lead me in another direction than that? So I can really be different. And that will flow out of Humility. That produces comfort, that produces praise, and it will end in transformation. You see, how, how this verse, this, this psalm, this poem falls on you will ultimately be determined by how you deal with those verses, the can-I-get-out-of-this-relationship verses. It'll either be, if true... It'll either be the worst possible news and you'll grate against it the rest of your life. Or it can be something that you'll accept the reality of. You cannot get away from the omniscience of God. You can't fly into space. You can't get an apartment in hell. You can't go to the far end of space. You can't cloak yourself in darkness. There is is nowhere to go. King Yahweh, the one who is eternally existent in himself and from himself, knows everything there is to know about you. You are a kindergartner and even knowledge of yourself, he has provided for you, and his knowledge of you can make you humble, it can comfort you, it can cause you to enjoy knowing God and praising and worshiping him. And it can transform you or it can be the worst news you've ever known and you can walk around with the specter of his knowledge of you unredeemed, unreconciled the rest of your life and then for all of eternity. But there's no need of that. Because God has said you don't have to embody a liar movie in your life. You can simply admit it and you can accept the one who while we were weak, ungodly, sinners and his enemies... Out of love and generosity Knowing everything about us Died for us That can get you to the place where you would say How precious to me is that thought Oh God If we, if we get there, there is a response that will come out of us that will free us. And it'll make men like me who when they see disabled kids think the thoughts of a Gestapo man into something else. It will change us. It will transform who we are. It will make us like Jesus. It will... It will make us what we were originally created to be. It will bring about the redemption that we long for. It will make us smaller but put us in a world that's bigger and one that w- in which we worship a big God. And it will always be unnerving to you and it should be unnerving to you because it will be a refuge against the dishonesty of your own heart but it will comfort you. That the God who's sovereign is good and the one who knew all things when he sent Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would um, help us to see the truth. I pray, God, for anybody in here who is still seeking to do what's in the second part of the psalm, still trying to figure out a way to get away. I pray, Father, that the truth that there's, there's just nowhere to go um, would begin to change in their hearts right now by the power of your illuminating spirit that that terrible news is actually the most redemptive possible thing that can happen to them because it, it takes away the option of self-damnation because there's just no, nothing else to do but to accept you as king, as the self-existent one that knows everything. And that they can put away the resistance and they can come to you. They can accept that they're fearfully and wonderfully made. They can accept that you know everything about them. They can accept that you can search their heart, know their anxieties. That they could, you could show what is offensive to them and you can lead them in the way of everlasting life. And that you've put away their sins in Christ if they'll just believe in him and trust him and belong to him. I pray for all of us who do believe in Jesus already. I pray that you'd make us people who believe like Jesus. I, Lord, I believe in Jesus, but this week really made clear that I don't believe like Jesus. Search our hearts, oh God. Know our anxieties. See and show us the offensive ways you see in us and lead us in a way everlasting. Alive in our imaginations with your beauty. Make us small in a world that's big, ruled over by a God who's big, so that we would be interesting and truthful and authentic in wanting to know you and come to you. Father, and make it a comforting truth in Father. Let it do something in us that we would see these things as precious and that we would praise you with our mouths and hands and arms and bodies and lives. We pray you to accomplish it through your Savior, Jesus.